So organizations like Global Minnesota and the World Affairs Council play an incredibly important role in advancing our international understanding. We've got traditional diplomacies, which is what I do, but the citizen diplomacy, whether it's through Global Minnesota, Rotary, that's where we get it one handshake at a time, one connection at a time to cement these, these um, connections. Welcome to the Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesota with the world. Our mission is to advance international understanding and engagement in every corner of the state. We do this with a variety of programs, including our public events, K-12 education programs, great decisions discussion groups, and professional exchanges. To learn more, visit our website at globalminnesota.org. I'm Nicholas Hayen, Marketing and Communications Manager for Global Minnesota, and today we are continuing our new podcast series by interviewing some of the amazing people Global Minnesota connects with as we work together to bring Minnesota to the world and the world to Minnesota. Many of our listeners have been following the progress of Minnesota's bid to host the 2027 World Expo here in Bloomington, Minnesota. Like the old World's Fairs many years ago, the Expo is an international event where visitors from all over the world come together to showcase their country's latest innovations. The U.S. is in the final stages of the bidding process, along with Thailand, Serbia, Spain, and Argentina, and the official vote is happening on June 21st. So by the time many of you hear this episode, we will probably already know who has been selected. Minnesota's bid focuses on Minnesota's strengths as a world leader in healthcare services. A global Minnesota doesn't have an official role in the bidding process, but we support this endeavor, and our immediate past president, Mark Ritchie, is one of the co-founders of Minnesota's bid. And we should also give a special mention to John Stanek, who serves as the president of Minnesota's Expo 2027 organization. On today's episode, I have the honor of being joined by Elizabeth Horst and Ken Moy, two senior foreign service officers at the U.S. Department of State, and who are both originally from Minnesota. Elizabeth Horst is the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of South and Central Asian Affairs. And Ken Moy is the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of East Asian and Pacific Affairs. Both of these guests have had distinguished careers as U.S. diplomats and are here to discuss the importance of Minnesota's Expo bid, the role that organizations like Global Minnesota play in citizen diplomacy, and how American foreign policy affects us all right here in America's heartland. So thank you both for joining us today. You're welcome. Hey, Nick, how are you doing? Hey, good to meet you. Sorry, I, I was going to catch you at the Global Minnesota event uh, a couple months ago, but um, my daycare closed out on that oh, day. So, Oh, no, that's that's kind of tough. How old do you have? Uh, how are, you, uh, are your kids? Two and five. Oh, that's nice. I could have brought the five-year-old, but the two-year-old. And yeah, it might have been a, <laughs> a little She's bit not ready for uh, Indo-Pacific strategy just yet, so... Well, Elizabeth, tell us a bit about your role in the State Department and how America's diplomacy efforts benefit us here in Minnesota. Sure. Well, uh, first of all, thanks for having me. It is always a delight to be able to talk to Minnesotans about what the State Department is doing for them in Washington. My current title right now is the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Bureau of South and Central Asia, which is a heck of a mouthful. Yes. <laughs> but what I'm trying to explain to, to family and friends what it is that I do, we have six regional bureaus. The State Department carves up the world geographically. And I am in charge of the bureau that is from Kazakhstan in Central Asia all the way down to Sri Lanka. There's 14 countries. And that includes some of our most populous countries in the world, including Pakistan, India, Bangladesh. What does a principal deputy assistant secretary do? So within our bureau, we focus on working the diplomacy with any of these countries. So how do we relate to, for example, India, whether it's in terms of trade or human rights issues, our bureau includes Afghanistan. So we were very involved in the evacuation from Kabul and the resettlement of refugees. In Central Asia, we talk to countries about energy, human rights, democracy, security, and so, the bureau that I sit in in the State Department is really responsible for being the tip of the spear for the whole U.S. government and talking to these other and talking to these other um, countries. Personally, as a diplomat, I'm here back in Washington. Most recently, I was in Berlin, where I was in charge of public diplomacy, which is everything from press to um, student exchanges to speakers programs and film series for all of um, our consulate and our embassy in Germany. 
As a diplomat, I've also served in Kyiv, Ukraine, in Tallinn, Estonia, where I was the deputy ambassador. I've served in Dushanbe, Tajikistan, in Lahore, Pakistan. I think that's it. I was also a Peace Corps volunteer in Niger, so I've hit that part of the world as well. So that's a little bit about my role in the State Department. Let me um, let me broaden out a little bit more to explain what what the State Department does for for Minnesota as well. And I think this is sometimes a little bit of a mystery. And you know, there is a Secretary of State in Minnesota that has nothing to do with the State Department. So even the name of the State Department in a lot of countries they call it the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. We call it the State Department because that's what they decided back in the day. Um, for 1% investment of the federal budget, the State Department is able to really um, yield a large return for the American people on national security, promoting economic interests, providing services, and really representing the United States around the world. Now, there's some very basic things that we do that I think people forget. The State Department issues visas. We issue passports. We support trade. Um, we promote American companies overseas. We run our embassies. Our number one mission overseas is always to protect United States citizens around the world. And so if you're traveling and you lose your passport, you're gonna to come to the embassy. In those unfortunate events, when someone's in trouble or injured, our embassy team is there to help. As I mentioned, a big part of what we do is promoting US exports and companies and advocating for US jobs. When I was in Ukraine, for example, we worked with Cargill that had a very big presence there. A lot of countries have 3M, for example, or do medical, um, medical devices overseas. And so we do that. We represent US countries. We also try to draw in foreign investment to the United States and to Minnesota. The stat that I have right now is that most recently, foreign direct investment in Minnesota created about 150,000 jobs in 2018. So it's wow. a two-way street. Yeah, it's a lot of jobs. So it's a two-way street. Not only are we selling U.S. products, agricultural products, medical devices, um, we are also trying to bring people in to invest in Minnesota and create jobs there. Minnesota is a great place for this because some of the things where we're specialists, supply chains, public health, climate solutions, technology, those are all things that are really important right now. And those are the issues that your diplomats, and I think of ourselves, we think of ourselves as American diplomats, are working on day in and day out. This is something that President Biden has talked about, about a foreign policy for all of America. And so it's great to be able to explain the sorts of things that we do, because I think sometimes you might not know what we're doing, not so much behind the scenes, but out of the headlines. Yeah, that's one of the areas that I'm really glad you brought up is just how much the State Department helps to advocate for American companies abroad. You know, you think of 3M, Lando Lakes, General Mills, all of these companies that have such a big footprint here in Minnesota, do so much for community investment. And so much of what the State Department does is to help with those countries to get them, you know, involved in other places. And as you said, for you know, less than 1% of the federal budget, which covers State Department, USAID, pretty much everything involved with all of these countries, it's uh, quite a return on investment. It's a huge return on investment. And I think sometimes people don't realize how much we can do with very little uh, money. It's not a big part of the, 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 the federal budget, but it is, you're getting bang for your buck with the State Department with USAID, I can assure you. Definitely. So then to you, Ken. Yeah, of course. Uh, I'm the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State uh, for East Asia and Pacific Affairs. Um, and what I do is to assist the Assistant Secretary in overseeing management of bilateral relationships, U.S. foreign relations with more than 30 countries in East Asia, including some of the big ticket countries would be China, Japan, Korea, but also all of Southeast Asia. Um, that would include countries like the Philippines, uh, Indonesia, Thailand, and of course, uh, a country that has become very well known uh, to Minnesotans, uh, Laos, uh, because of the, the Hmong community, uh, which has uh, received a great embrace uh, by uh, my fellow uh, Minnesotans. But this region also includes Australia, New Zealand, and other Pacific islands. So you have a mix of the large and easily identifiable countries like China and Japan but also countries that maybe a lot of Americans don't pay uh, close attention to, like Palau, Marshall Islands, Papua New Guinea, that's also part of our region. And so I'm proud that we oversee about 15,000 employees 
abroad in our embassies and consulates, uh, and also in Washington, uh, these 15,000 uh, colleagues of mine are responsible for that oversight of day-to-day uh, -day management. Um, in terms of what um, our diplomacy brings uh, to the United States, to the American people, and uh, my fellow Minnesotans, um, I think the Secretary of State has uh, said it uh, best when he talks about how uh, we work on issues like climate change, on supply chains, on economic security. And, and these are the things that we live and breathe as diplomats when we're abroad. We're looking for opportunities to help protect Americans and American interests. We're also looking at um, possible problem solving uh, methods, ways that we can um, help peoples and companies uh, who encounter difficulties. We're trying to help them uh, through uh, those difficulties by communicating. That's essentially what we do as a profession. We communicate with foreign countries and we're trying to help strengthen uh, American interests um, and the American people abroad. I think the most salient example of how um, what we do abroad can be seen in uh, the United States and in Minnesota is through um, the visa process and especially um, permitting uh, foreign students to come and study in the United States. So if you are on the campus of the University of Minnesota, uh, Twin Cities, uh, or if you're at McAllister, Gustavus, if you're at Carleton College, these are all uh, terrific uh, academic institutions that welcome foreign students. And you're very likely to see students coming from our region, East Asia, where there are not just the 300,000 or 290,000 students from uh, the People's Republic of China, but there are 20,000 students from Korea, Taiwan, we have uh, thousands of students. So that those are salient examples of the things that uh, we do on a daily basis that you will probably see uh, in the state of Minnesota. And also finally, um, Minnesota is already a, a very open um, state when it comes to uh, its Fortune 500 companies and the penetration of our Fortune 500 com uh, uh, companies overseas. And so you are likely to see the sort of the results of the outcome of that business outreach overseas where there's foreign direct investment coming into the United States, but also the United States investing in um, factories overseas and uh, economies overseas. And so that brings a kind of international flavor to the state of Minnesota. And so I think that through diplomacy, where we advocate for those companies, not just the, the, the large ones, but also small and medium-sized ones as well, that's where you would see our, our impact. So the State Department uh, certainly works primarily outside of the United States to help advance American interests. But what are some of the ways in which the State Department helps to bring foreign policy and international visitors to places like Minnesota? So as I mentioned, we do we do visas. We are how Amer how foreigners can come to visit us, and every embassy around the world helps decide who is qualified for a visa and whether that's a tourist visa or a work visa or special visas for um, for performers or athletes. We're the ones that make sure that they can come and visit the United States. We also run a number of exchange programs. And this is one of those things that I think has touched the lives of lots of people all around the world, the different exchanges that we do. Fulbright scholars at universities is something a lot of people have heard of, either Minnesotans who have applied to be Fulbrighters and gone off, but we also bring foreign scholars to our universities. And you know, Minnesota has world-class institutions, including starting at the University of Minnesota, um, where people from around the world want to come and work on their specialties and are able to exchange some of the ideas in the, the scientific and academic community. State Department also runs a fantastic program called the International Visitors Leadership Program, IVLP. And this is a professional exchange program where midway in your career, you might be a mayor of a small town in Pakistan. You might be a community organizer in Ukraine. You might be a banker in India. And you can apply through our embassies to these exchange programs that come. And through Washington, you visit parts of the United States to figure out and to connect with Americans that are working in your field. It's an extraordinary program. And it builds us lifelong friends who then understand the American model and the American way of doing things. 
I think about how when I was in Tajikistan, we brought a, a, an exchange group of five bankers to see how we run our banking system. This blew their minds, it opened their eyes, and they were amazed at how open we were about what had worked and what hadn't. And it's a great way through these professional exchange programs to really show the essence of what, what makes America special, this, this openness to new ideas, this willingness to look at what things are working and what things aren't and to improve them. And that is something that we really showcase through IVLP. We also do foreign physicians, teachers, camp counselors, au pairs, there's something called the Summer Work and Travel Program, which allows young people to come and work at resorts in northern Minnesota uh, just cool. for the summer. It's really cool. I, I was up yeah. in Greenard and uh, talked to somebody and they were there on a summer work and travel visa and they were from Romania. And it's a great opportunity for young people from around the world to come and work for the summer, um, earn a living, travel a little bit, and then go back. And they've had this experience of being able to, to know the United States. I also want to put a plug in for something called the Diplomat in Residence Program, which puts State Department personnel at universities across the United States to mentor students, to recruit uh, those who are interested in the State Department. And we'll make sure that we give you for the show notes, the address, uh, the email address for the Diplomat in Resident in the Midwest. Her name is Susan Falatko. She's a very experienced uh, diplomat and would love to hear from any of your listeners who are thinking, State Department sounds kind of cool. How do I get involved? Careers.state.gov is another place to just look at how somebody from the Midwest, like me, can figure out how to become a part of the State Department. We're always looking to bring in diverse Americans. Uh, this is the strength of the State Department as well. We don't represent any particular region. We are um, a combination of people from all over, from all backgrounds, not only as diplomats, but also as specialists in our civil service. We have contractors that work with us. We have fellows. There's a range of ways that people can come and work for the State Department and, and really be that bridge again back to other parts of the United States. Yeah, and speaking of diplomats and residents, um, I think Global Minnesota listeners will certainly know of Tom Hansen, the diplomat in residence from the uh, University of Minnesota Duluth, who gives his uh, annual foreign policy update. Um, and I do just want to mention how proud Global Minnesota is to serve as the implementing partner for the International Visitor Leadership Program here in Minnesota. So, you know, you guys over at State Department, you find these wonderful people from all over the world, bring them to Minnesota, and then we connect them here on the ground with uh, their counterparts. So I remember uh, we've had some really great uh, groups of journalists who come from all over the country, yeah. and we bring them to places like Minnesota Public Radio or WCCO, and they connect and they form these lifelong partnerships that is just so crucial and beneficial to, to what we're trying to do here in the United States and to what they're trying to do abroad. And you know, these, these alumni from, from our exchange programs and from IVLP, they got them to do amazing things. I am so impressed that over the decades, our track records at identifying true leaders early in their careers, sending them overseas, and then watching them develop into members of parliament, into cabinet ministers. We've had some presidents um, and prime ministers be alumni of our programs. It is, uh, we've got a great track record and I think um, we, we showcase the best part of the United States. So really glad to hear that Global Minnesota is one of our partners on that because it's just um, one of the best ways we can do this people to people diplomacy. The State Department does a lot of official stuff, but at the end of the day, diplomacy is about more than any one government. It's about people connecting with people and keeping channels of communication open. And that's what you all are doing. We often talk, or President Biden often talks about um, democracy and how we continue or we should continue to try to advance uh, democracy when there is sort of a creeping authoritarianism um, around the world. Well, and the best way to do that is to receive visitors who can learn from us what freedom means, what some of our values like freedom of religion, freedom of speech, also rule of law these kinds of things that we sometimes Americans, we take it for granted, but when foreign communities come to the United States and they see um, what happens in the state uh, Senate in Minnesota, what happens in, um, in our uh, governor's office, uh, that is, uh, I think, encouraging for them. Also, what we do in the economy, what we do at our academic institutions to promote uh, our economy. These are all things that 
foreign audiences learn from us. And I'm really proud that Minnesota is actually a great spot for uh, these foreign communities to visit because whenever I go out on the speaking circuit overseas and I talk about uh, my background in Minnesota, invariably there will be people who come up to me after the talk and they will say, I spent time there and I love Minnesota. I spent time at the University of Minnesota. I spent time uh, at a company training. Uh, maybe I spent time at 3M and maybe I spent time at, at Pillsbury, these kinds of um, places that, that really embrace um, you know, foreign uh, visitors and uh, couldn't be prouder uh, of the fact that Minnesota uh, really comes off as such a welcoming place. One point that you mentioned that I really want to highlight is is talking about bringing people here and having them see the inner workings of American democracy, because I think right now um, around the world, oftentimes the the negative aspects of it tend to be amplified a little more, and we don't necessarily see that you know the process can be a little messy, but ultimately it's so important to help in representing the people and to see those inner workings and to see exactly how that system can be can be identified and replicated in other places where it's it's a lot harder to get a foothold. I think that's so helpful to see the positive sides of that, because as I say right now, a lot of times you only see the negative side of that around the world. No, that's, that's absolutely right. I think, um, you know, when I explain to um, audiences in the upper Midwest, in particular Minnesota, about the impact they can have. I often talk about, uh, I, I, I talk in terms of um, their being ambassadors themselves. You know, that's my sort of uh, profession. I'm a practitioner of diplomacy and it's my job to go overseas and represent us. But there's no better explanation um, than um, an American citizen or there's no better way to explain how America works and the great positives of our freedoms um, than to have an American, and uh, in including uh, many of my fellow Minnesotans, who speak to foreign uh, audiences and can tell them what life is like on a daily basis. It, it's it's that that openness. It's the the freedoms that we enjoy. And uh, again, it's it's the really it's the citizen ambassadors um, that really make uh, the greatest impact, in my view. Exactly. So speaking of bringing millions of people to Minnesota. Let's talk about the upcoming expo bid. So assuming we're successful in bringing the expo to Minnesota, what can we expect from this event? And how important do you think it will be for America's diplomatic efforts? I think it will be, it will have a great impact. Uh, we've been talking about this uh, over the last several months, including when I was in Minnesota uh, just recently and visited the, the site or the proposed site. Uh, adjacent to the Mall of America in Bloomington. So there's an entire generation in the United States, young Americans who've never really heard much about the Expo. Maybe they've heard about World's Fairs, the World's Fair of New York, the World's mm -hmm. Fair of Chicago, yeah. and in 1984, the World's Fair in, in New Orleans. That's essentially what an Expo is, right? And maybe we've lost that sense of wonderment and also the sense of leadership. But I can think of a, a few reasons um, why Minnesotans should be interested in, in hosting. The first one is at the very basic level, a job creation, right? We've thought, uh, we've projected out that maybe 150,000 jobs would uh, be created. And I think you have to think about it more in, in the longer term though. It's not just about an event like the Super Bowl or the US Open or even the State Fair of Minnesota, which lasts a couple of weeks, right? This is over a three month period. And it really is about investing in the longer term because not only will you receive international visitors for that period of time that you're hosting, but also the impact that it has down the road when more people in the United States because this is not just an international kind of uh, event. It also invites people from all across the United States to come to the state. It, it, it creates a kind of branding. That's actually the, the second reason why I think that the Minnesotans should be interested in hosting. And that's that branding of Minnesota as a player on the international scale. 
we already know, we in Minnesotans know about this, but not enough uh, people in the world know about Medical Alley that so many uh, Fortune 500 companies um, are located or headquartered in the state. As I'm told, as I heard the other day at the reception that Secretary Blinken hosted and also Senator Klobuchar hosted here in Washington uh, for uh, the expo in our campaign, um, as I've heard, uh, Minnesota has the largest number of Fortune 500 companies per capita in the United States, as the, the most uh, in any state. And so it's that kind of fact uh, or that information that very few people know about that we should be proud of and we should be talking about not just the 3Ms and the Cargills of the world. We should also be talking about the University of Minnesota Health System and also um, the Mayo Clinic, some, something that, uh, that is worldwide, uh, has a worldwide recognition. And finally, uh, I was getting to this a little bit earlier. I think the third reason why Minnesotans should be interested in, in this is just the wonderment of the international world. How I became interested in international affairs or foreign affairs, um, you know, it happened in the 1970s, actually, when I wasn't even a teenager and my parents took me overseas to Asia. And that really planted a seed in my head, in my brain, that, boy, only a flight away, it might be a long flight, it might be a 12-hour flight, it might be a 14-hour flight, but there's an entire world out there. It's all of this interconnectedness that Minnesota should be about and the wonderment of going to a World's Fair or an Expo. I think that's something that's been missing for a generation. It's something that we can have. And then on the other side, why is Minnesota great uh, to be a host? The first is we're already built for it, right? <laughs> we know what it is to host a big uh, national event like the Super Bowl. We know what it's like to host an event like the State Fair, which draws people from the upper Midwest to the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. So we don't have to build all of the hotels. We don't have to create another airport, which is already in the backyard of this site uh, in Bloomington. So that's number one. I think the second uh, reason um, why is we are already one of the leaders in, in healthcare, but we are also leaders in other fields as well. In, in terms of agricultural exports, for example, where we export so much of our soy, our corn, and that part of Minnesota, our, um, the way we feed the world should also be another aspect of this um, that uh, draws in uh, people. And I think, um, you know, the Mayo Clinic and the University of Minnesota are two other reasons, the two big draws for this as well. And finally, I think it's that Minnesota actually embraces the international community. Uh, Minnesota is home to such a, such a broad array of the world's citizens, and they call themselves Minnesotans. Openness, kindness, generosity, these are all part of the qualities of Minnesotans that I think would be put on display. And that's why Minnesota would be an absolutely perfect choice to host. If we win this campaign, it will be the first time in 40 years that the United States gets to host the Expo. And we are long overdue because the United States is still a leader in technology and business and innovation. So it would be an exciting opportunity to introduce Minnesota to the global stage as an American hub for innovation. When you think about Medical Alley, when you think about our, our institutions that are doing science and technology and all the innovation that's going on in, in small and, and big companies, the theme itself, Healthy People, Healthy Planet, couldn't be more timely. We're coming out of a pandemic where people are really thinking about health as a global issue. Healthy Planet, I don't need to tell any of your listeners how important it is that the climate solutions are global solutions. No one country, no one city, no one state can do it on their own. So it'd be an opportunity for Minnesotans to really promote the health and wellness that we're so famous for and, and to showcase new technology. Now, very practically, the expo is expected to attract 14 million visits. But it's not just bringing the world to Bloomington, it's also bringing Minnesota to the world. And I think that's the thing for me as a proud Minnesotan that excites me the most is that 
a lot of times on the global stage, people think of some um, different parts of the United States, New York, Washington, California, and yet Minnesota can hold its own. Um, Definitely. To offering the world something. I always tell people we are the home of Norman Borlaug and Prince and post-it notes. Yes. <laughs> we can also think that um, the Expo 27 would be a catalyst for economic growth, for tourism. So it's not just about the year of the Expo. It's about what goes beyond. Um, it will be branding Minnesota, I think, for the next generation of young people across the world who are going to know Minnesota as a place where they can come for innovation and technology and for, for health and, and climate issues that are so important to the next generation. Yeah, and it is that next generation that we need to build up and that I know is, is hungry for that type of engagement here in Minnesota. It's a global event on par with hosting a World Cup or the Olympics. It's bigger than the Super Bowl, and it is something that I think will play to Minnesota's strengths and Minnesota's diversity. So Global Minnesota is one of the World Affairs Councils of America and has a variety of programs that help advance international understanding in the state. How do organizations like Global Minnesota and our counterparts across the country, how do they enhance American foreign policy? And why would you say citizen diplomacy is so important? So diplomacy is about more than just the State Department. And I think people-to-people -people diplomacy is really at the heart of connecting countries around the world and solving some of our biggest programs. So organizations like Global Minnesota and the World Affairs Council play an incredibly important role in advancing our international understanding. We've got traditional diplomacies, which is what I do, but the citizen diplomacy, whether it's through Global Minnesota, Rotary, Model UN, uh, the Fulbright exchanges that we talk to, that's where we get it one handshake at a time, one connection at a time to cement these, these um, connections. And so it's really important that it's not just taking place in Washington uh, with professionals, but that it's taking place and building the base upon which we can do our work. Absolutely vital. And we appreciate the partnership. Yeah. And as you said, building those connections outside of the traditional coastal areas, you know, because the heartland has so much to offer and we have such a hunger for that type of engagement with the rest of the world. And so many times, you know, when people come to Minnesota, they're just, they're blown away by, you know, the culture and the atmosphere. And they think about like, why didn't I know more about Minnesota in the first place? And they're just so happy to, to have been here and to get to know us a little more. Exactly. Exactly. So speaking of, of Minnesota, what part of that Minnesota upbringing do you think influences the way you carry out your work? So I think two things stand out. I'm a, a stereotypical Minnesotan in that I have Swedish and Norwegian roots. But growing up, my family is actually very, very diverse. I have cousins who are half Filipino. I have a cousin whose husband's family immigrated from Liberia. I have another cousin whose wife was born in Honduras. And our church was very active in sponsoring Vietnamese refugees in the 1970s. So this diversity as a Minnesotan, um, it's, it's as fundamental to being a Minnesotan as jokes about Ludafisk or Sven and Oli. And it's something that I think outsiders don't realize is fundamental to the state, that we are a really diverse state, that it's not just the Scandinavians, that it's been many generations that contribute to a place that is open and tolerant and progressive and innovative. The second thing, I went to Concordia College language camps as a kid. So I spent five summers at Svaltse, the German camp, and I loved it. And I have no doubt that that is what really sparked my love of languages, my curiosity about the world, my sense of adventure. Um, I'm so grateful to have had that opportunity and to see the world that Concordia College built. My dad grew up in Moorhead, Minnesota and lived right across the street from Concordia College. So back in the day, I was one of the first campers and to see what it's become and how it has brought the world to Minnesota and projected Minnesota to the world is I think something that stays with me as a diplomat um, deep, deep, deep in my roots. I talked a little bit about it earlier. It is that Minnesotans, and, and I regard myself uh, having uh, spent uh, my formative years there, as being someone who is very tolerant and someone who listens uh, to others. And so I tend not to want to, you know, even though I take the American message abroad and I am happy to talk about the, the virtues of America, the things that makes America great, I'm also willing to listen to other ideas, ideas that may not be things that we are uh, exposed to very often. 
and try to keep an open mind. I think that's what makes Minnesota uh, so great. And that's what I bring when I go overseas. I often talk about diplomats, uh, American diplomats. It's almost like when you watch the Olympic Games and you see all of these teams marching into the stadium, right? It could be, you know, they're from Turkey, they're from, you know, Mozambique and all these countries. There's nothing quite like watching the American team walk into the stadium, though, because it includes so many of the world's people just contained in, you know, under that flag. And when I talk to uh, audiences, even when I talk to my fellow uh, diplomats uh, here in the State Department, I talk about those moments that make me so proud when I walk into a, a high school overseas and when I talk to um, you know, business audiences. What the team that I bring is usually one that's extremely diverse and very reflective of the kind of the beautiful mosaic that we we have in America and, and in the State Department. Those are the kinds of things that I like uh, to take abroad along with my messages of this is what we are about as America. This is our history. We are not necessarily a perfect country, right? We are continuing in our long press, process of trying to perfect ourselves. But what we have created, what we have created for the world, including a rules-based international order, these are the things that we believe um, will create a more prosperous world, a, a more peaceful world, and under under U.S. leadership. And those are the things I'm proud of. Those are the things that I think Minnesota brings to the table. And that's that's really essentially, uh, you know, our kind of diplomacy in action, bringing all those little aspects, those things that we grew up with in our little community. Um, we all bring that kind of background to what we do, and, and we're extremely proud uh, as diplomats that we are not just from one location. We are from all locations across America, including in the upper Midwest, like Minnesota. Exactly. And I think you really hit just how how beautiful it is that the United States is this, this nation of ideas, of, of freedom and liberty and it's not tied to any one particular group of people or type of people or background. It's if you are part, if you believe in this and you want to be a part of it, that's all that it really takes. And I think you you really mentioned that it it sets us apart from everyone else in that way. And I think that's just so beautiful of a message. So um, let's talk a few current events then. Um, while understanding that this is sort of outside your current portfolio, you have served, as you mentioned, in both Moscow and in Ukraine. So what would you say is at stake here at home regarding Russia's further invasion of Ukraine? Russia's further invasion of Ukraine, a sovereign independent country, really puts at stake the question of global, um, global sovereignty and integrity. The United States is gonna to continue to support Ukraine for as long as it takes so that Ukraine continue to defend itself and be in the strongest possible position at the negotiating table when the time comes. Russia started this war. Russia could end this war. Uh, we have all seen some of the devastating images that have come out of Ukraine. I know that uh, Minnesota has been incredibly generous to both Ukrainian refugees and also helping Ukrainian veterans with, with prosthetics. I believe the Protes Foundation has brought a number of Ukrainians over to help get fitted. Uh, it's again, Minnesota superiority when it comes to medical technology, helping in a global crisis. Uh, so uh, the global, the, Russia's further invasion of Ukraine has threatened global food markets, which is something that impacts Minnesota agriculture. This is something that um, the world won't be at peace until we can demonstrate that aggression against a sovereign country is something that can't be tolerated. And we know that Putin could stop this war today. If Russia stopped war fighting, the war ends. If Ukraine stops fighting, Ukraine ends. And so we're gonna continue to support Ukraine together with our allies. And if this has done one thing, it's demonstrated that the power of alliances and the power of coming together to fight for what we know is right is still incredibly important, even in this day and age. Yeah, and I think it really drives home how you mentioned that. Not only is it, of course, a problem just 
a country invading another sovereign country and trying to take its its land, but it really has those direct impacts here in Minnesota with with the economy and with food prices and things like that. You think of, you know, if we just allow one nation to do that this one time, if it continues on and on again and again, that's further shocks the financial markets, further problems for, for worldwide food distribution. The problems just don't end unless we try to stop this type of trend from starting in the first place. Correct. So we are standing behind Ukraine for as long as it takes because we know that Ukraine is standing up for the values that have upheld really um, this this global prosperity and security that we've enjoyed since the end of the Second World War. Yeah. And this region of the world that you you do cover, it's at this nexus of influence. You know, it borders Russia, it borders China. How do we solidify our alliances and partnerships with those border countries to help compete on this global stage? So one of the things we try to do across our our region, which is in a tough neighborhood, you can't change geography. So China is always going to be a neighbor. Russia is going to have influence and be a neighbor. Is we demonstrate to all of these countries the partnership that the American model and that America that America offers. Uh, we respect the sovereignty of other countries. We want to help other countries develop and be prosperous because I think something that's fundamental to who we are as Americans is believing that a rising tide lifts all boats, that while there's competition in the world, competition is healthy. It spurs innovation. Um, we see this across a lot of sectors. And so that's uh, what we try to do, particularly in Central Asia. Um, we, we have a lot of engagement through a format that we call the C5 plus one, where we're talking with all five Central Asian governments. But really, we're offering America as a partner, as an alternative that is based on, on both interests and values of independence and free markets and the sort of things that we in America and in Minnesota probably take for granted, but can sometimes be a choice in other countries and we want to help them offer the choice if they, if they want to take it. Yeah, and I think it's that contrast between the American model, which which does try to have you know mutual interests for everybody, versus other models, which could be a little more exploitative, that other countries try to push out there. You know, we want everyone to try to succeed, and as you you kind of alluded to, it's not just the right thing to do; it's in our interest to do it. So, Ken, as you know, of course, uh, Secretary Blinken just met with his Chinese counterparts recently. Uh, when thinking of you know, as it's called, great power competition with China. What would you say is at stake here at home? Uh, what is our current policy position and why exactly are we doing it this way? Right. Well, these are all really great questions. I think that, um, I think to take a step back um, before um, Secretary Blinken went to, to Beijing uh, over the past uh, couple of days, um, I think that what we um, in the, the U.S. government see is a, a China that is the one country in the world that not only has um, the intent to change um, the, the world order, but the means to do it. And I think for us as supporters of a rules-based uh, international order, a world that we have helped create and, and we wrote the rules for for the benefit of all, uh, not just for one country. I think that it is so important for us to make sure that those changes um, in China that have occurred over the last 20, 30 years, especially those changes that are more worrisome in the areas of human rights and, and perhaps um, you know, uh, coercing countries economically, as well as um, bullying some other countries, it, it's important for us to, to show um, that the world united, like-minded countries united, uh, is able to kind of thwart um, any kind of threat to that international order. So I think that you know what the secretary has said, what Secretary Blinken has said is our policy approach is going to be sort of three-pronged. We're going to invest, we're going to align, and we're also going to compete. So the invest part is you already seen it uh, in this administration where we've passed or the president has passed the, the CHIPS and uh, Science Act. There's also the Inflation Reduction Act, those things that are going to invest back in the uh, American economy. So investing in our strength, making sure the United States is a strong, uh, continues to be a strong economy and one that's very resilient. That's that's number one. I think the aligned part is where 
um, if you tackle some of these issues on your own, you're going to be a lot less successful than bringing together partners, friends, allies. And it could be countries like Japan in Australia, India, where we've created these groupings, this one called the Quad. It could be that we're just uniting um, with like-minded countries in Southeast Asia, uh, could be Indonesia, could be Philippines, around um, a set of rules that, that govern um, the South China Sea and free maritime or free commerce in, in maritime areas. And then finally, compete. And that's where we get into um, the discussion about China, where we are making sure that we are um, calling out countries uh, like China where there have been um, human rights uh, violations, uh, including genocide, where we have to make a statement about our values. We have to stand up for what we believe in. It could be um, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, it could be Tibetans, uh, it also could be Hong Kong and how they've lost uh, many of their uh, freedoms over the last few years. But I think it's important that Secretary Blinken has also said um, about our policy that you know we are going to do this, but we are also going to make sure um, that we are not decoupling um, that people know that we are what we call de-risking, right? It's not that our economies, which uh, are inextricably linked, uh, will be separated. Um, I think you know, Secretary Yellen, our Treasury Secretary, uh, mentioned this in a speech a little while ago where she said it would be disastrous for us to decouple because we are so invested in one another. But de-risking is important because we have seen the kind of damage that over-reliance on one country for supply chains uh, can bring. And so um, it's important that we do that. I think in the end, uh, when it comes to the, the trip that the secretary took um, to Beijing, he had uh, um, very constructive meetings, I think, with uh, Xi Jinping, uh, the president of China, the People's Republic of China, uh, and two other of his uh, very senior foreign affairs uh, counterparts uh, in the Chinese government. And I think that um, I think the what we were trying to emphasize, or the reason why he went uh, to Beijing, was one to strengthen high-level channels of communication because a lot of people don't know this, but it had been uh, approximately five years since the last Secretary of State traveled to China, and it is important to maintain these kinds of high-level dialogues so we avoid a kind of miscalculation, something that could escalate to harm the interests of America and the American people. It would have a devastating impact on our economies. There, there are many projections over what would be at risk if we were involved in some kind of a protracted kind of uh, you know, confrontation with China. And it would be devastating to all in the world, really. I think the second reason why he went to, to Beijing is to make clear uh, about our positions and where we disagree. I mentioned human rights as, as one obvious example, but there, there are a number of other examples, including uh, the PRC's um, intimidation of Taiwan that we uh, view as uh, fundamentally destabilizing uh, in the region and a threat to peace because it could there could be accidents that escalate into um, something that uh, we would not like to see. And finally, I think the third area is we'd also like uh, the secretary wanted to explore potential areas where there's agreement, where there can be chances that we can work together. Um, the secretary did accomplish these things. Um, he had these conversations. He was very clear on areas where we didn't agree. Um, but he was also um, looking for areas where there might be some uh, chance of, of um, you know, joining together to do some problem solving. And um, we're hopeful that down the road we'll have uh, other uh, high-level uh, dialogues uh, with uh, the Chinese government. I think that that really benefits America. Um, and I think overall, when the world is at peace and we you know, know the world uh, since, um, you know, February, <laughs> 2022, when uh, Russia launched its uh, attack on Ukraine, the world hasn't been at peace. And the destabilization uh, following that 
in the world's economy has had just a really profound impact uh, on the world's people, um, affecting everything from food security to energy security. And so we do have to have these discussions with China to make sure that we can try to, to stabilize um, the world's economy, that we can you know, ensure that Americans uh, have an opportunity uh, to continue to grow uh, our economy and to, um, you know, to continue to reach out to the world uh, to make sure um, that uh, the world is fed and that the world uh, continues to, to tackle these um, real you know, problematic uh, existential issues like climate change. Yeah, and just like you said, you know, creating these, finding these areas of common ground, keeping the lines of communication open, ensuring that we can avoid these types of conflicts. It's not just the right thing to do, it's in our interest to do. And just quickly circling back to one thing you said right at the very beginning about upholding the current system that we have, you know, I think that a lot of people can see that this this system certainly does have a little bit of some flaws you know it has it has created some some inequalities throughout the world it has of course risen you know the tide of everyone generally speaking but i think what's important is to think about it not so much as um that despite these flaws we ought to throw out the system but that we ought to make sure that it is more equitable for everyone and to find those areas where it's it's not creating equal success for everyone throughout the world and and making sure that we can overcome those differences rather than throwing out the entire system itself because i think that's yeah. probably the better course of action yeah that that's very well said but what makes the system so great is it is malleable to a certain extent, as long as it's rules-based and it benefits the entire community, then I think that uh, that is the important aspect uh, of the, the rules-based world order in, in that, it, in, and that is that uh, it, is, uh, it is changeable to benefit uh, more and more countries, and that we've done. Well, Elizabeth, Ken, thank you again so much for joining today and for everything you do to represent the United States on the world stage. Thank you. I appreciate this. I am an enthusiastic Minnesotan, as you know. Thank you, Nick, and thank you for what you do. When I talked about uh, the citizen ambassadors, uh, you're at the top of the list right there because you're bringing the message uh, to Minnesotans and you're bringing the message to Americans uh, in, in a much uh, sort of, uh, you know, broader way than, than we can. And that's all the time we have today. You can learn all about our various international programs by visiting globalminnesota.org. You can also learn about Minnesota's Expo 2027 bid by visiting expo2027.us. Thanks as always to all the members of Global Minnesota who make our programs possible. Be sure to check out our website at globalminnesota.org to find information about upcoming events, learn more about our international programs, and sign up for our weekly newsletters. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already, so you can hear untold stories of international connections each month and catch recordings of our public events. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.